If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to View from Military Mind for February 10th, 2020. Today's show is brought to you by Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 2702 in Huntsville, Alabama. The VFWs, some say they've got your back, and we prove it. VFW.org What do you see in a parade? You see children with their flags? Families clapping and laughing. What do you see when he walks by? Do you see his struggle? His path? His fight? Do you see him? When he walks, he walks alone. When he stands, he stands by himself. But he stands knowing the force of the VFW, America's largest organization of combat veterans, has his back. We are the VFW, and no one does more for veterans. How's everyone doing today? Well, here's some highlights for our show today. We're going to touch a little bit on term limits. Uh, auto flush of Congress, but will it ever happen? And is it something that we need to start doing as the voting citizens of the United States. Uh, we've asked and asked and asked for them to pass term limits in Congress. Now it's time for us to take a little bit of action into this. Other topic we're going to get into is gender reallocation. Should the military be repay, be paying for it? And there's a lot of myths to dispel here. Um, our third topic today is going to be lifetime pay and retirement, Congress versus military and the public. Uh, it's not what you think it is. And we've got a little um, extra here for us today, um, coming from the Washington De Examiner and Daily on, uh, Daily on Defense, their particular uh, reporting here. Uh, we had a sneak attack that killed uh, two U.S. Special Forces personnel, um, and six other American troops were wounded Saturday in Afghanistan when an attacker dressed as a member of the Afghan Security Forces opened fire on U.S. Special Operations troops as leaving a compound in eastern Afghanistan. So upon completing a key litter engagement at the district center, current reports indicate an individual in an Afghan uniform opened fire on the combined U.S. and Afghan force with a machine gun. This was uh, 
reported by Colonel Sonny Leggett, a spokesman for U.S. Forces Afghanistan or USFORA for uh, you personnel who have been there before. Um, in a statement provided to the Washington Examiner, we are still collecting information and the cause or motive behind the attack is unknown at this time, he said. Um, the Afghan Ministry of Defense reported that one member of the Afghan National Army was also killed and three others wounded in the attack, which is now under investigation by both the U.S. and Afghanistan. The Pentagon has identified the fallen troops as Sergeant First Class Javier Jaguar Guterres, 28, of San Antonio, Texas, and Sergeant First Class Antonio Rey Rodriguez, 28, of Las Cruces, New Mexico. Both were Green Berets assigned to 3rd Battalion, 7th Special Forces Group Airborne, out of Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, and both received posthumous promotions. Uh, last year in Afghanistan, 23 troops died, 21 in combat, and 2 in what was described by the Pentagon as non-combat incidences, according to a count by the Washington Examiner. So far this year, 4 U.S. troops have died, 2 in the incident Saturday, and two 82nd Airborne soldiers who were killed January 11th when a roadside bomb struck their vehicle while on patrol. All right. We'll always remember our troops and uh, have them and their families in our thoughts and hearts and prayers. And, of course, on Fridays, we'll always uh, remember everyone deployed by wearing red. So uh, join with me as we remember these troops in our thoughts and prayers. And... Uh, always support our U.S. military personnel. So hang tight for us. Uh, we'll be right back after the break, and we'll get into our first topic, uh, the term limits and the autoflosh of uh, Congress. Hang with me there. Let's move out. My name is Corporal Bradley Joseph Seitz. Jerry Reed. Kate Weber. These are real veterans facing a real challenge. I have PTSD. And I have PTSD. I have PTSD. Post-traumatic stress disorder can happen to anyone. I was still in a war zone in my mind. But treatment can turn your life around. Treatment has really saved my life. To learn about PTSD and how treatment can help you, call your local VA medical center or visit ptsd.va.gov. Welcome back. A little plug there for the VA. Uh, you veterans out there, first responders, police, law, medical, PTSD, PTSD, I'll get it out there, is a real thing. See your health care provider about it, get it taken care of. This is not a fight you have to do by yourself. All right, we're going to be taking a look at uh, term limits. Um, as was said early on, these are, these are things I got from folks around my little world here, uh, recommendations for what we should have on the show today. And one of the things we're really interested in are congressional term limits. Will they happen? Can we make those things happen? And what's the repercussions? Uh, in a tweet on Monday afternoon, President Trump reendorsed his campaign promise calling for term limits on Congress, um, specifically limiting members of the House to six years of service, three terms, and members of the Senate to 12 years of service, two terms. Um, we got the looking and trying to determine how many members of the 115th Congress would have been out of a job in 2019 if we'd have gone ahead with these uh, term limits. And as a report we had, had found through um, quorum.us, a website that uh, gives insights and things uh, and data on these particular type of events, um, they had indicated 73% of the representatives – that's the representatives 
will have served three or more terms. 318 of those representatives, more than two-thirds of the House, would have lost their job. And of the 318 senator, uh, legislators, 161 are Republican, 157 are Democrats. So we'd have lost 318 representatives on both sides of the aisle with term limits. Okay. The Senate, 46 of 100 senators would have been lost within the 115th Congress. Um, 32 of those have already served two terms. An additional 14 uh, will complete their second term at the end of the, the Congress. Um, 23 Democrats, 22 Republicans, and one's are independent. So this would have been a broad-spectrum cleaning of Congress. Uh, a lot of people would like to see this happen. Um, we know President Trump definitely would. It's part of his Drain the Swamp project, or uh, his campaign promise. Now... Could it be counterproductive? Um, we've seen some information on that. We've seen some ideas behind that. Um, of course, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, as he reported in uh, uh, The Hill or in the Federal Times, uh, has a plan, he says, will ensure lawmakers can't make a career out of serving in the same congressional seat by adding an amendment to the Constitution that would limit U.S. senators to two six-year terms and U.S. House of Representatives to three two-year terms which is what we just looked at on, on, in the breakdown from President Trump's um, particular thought. Uh, he had induced, introduced this in early 2019, uh, but it only garnered support from Republican law, lawmakers so far. Um, June of 18, uh, hearing the Senate Judiciary Committee that the concept is supported by a majority of Republicans, Democrats, and uh, independents. That's what Cruz has noted, all right, now we come into 2020, and we really don't have a whole lot of feeling on that. Uh, they're not saying a whole lot to us about it. Um, you know, again, as Senator Cruz goes on and says, we do not have to speculate, as the founders did, that the prospect of a permanent tenure in Congress might tempt senators and representatives towards self-interest, short-term thinking. We know for a fact, especially in recent decades when control of Congress has been constantly up grabs, this short-term thinking has become Congress's defining, defining defect. And that came from uh, Jim DeMint, a former U.S. senator and a witness at the particular hearings that were talking on this. Um, there's a whole lot of people's got their pros and cons about it. Some of them say that it's not going to be good because we're turning people over too fast. They don't have time to learn what their job is. Uh, they don't have time to... Do a, uh, like in the military, we do a left seat, right seat. Um, fortunately, in the military, when we do a left seat, right seat, we know what our job is. And we're able to pass on those idiosyncrasies and those uh, special little things of the job we're doing on to our incoming counterparts. There's no reason this can't be done here. Uh, Grant, is, some people say it is so much more complicated only because they made it that way. Um, they're in there to represent us for what we want. It's not that hard um, to see what has to be done. It's time to clean this mess up. Okay. We go on to say that uh, notably there's no support for term limits significantly increasing the proportions of citizen legislators uh, rather than career-oriented oriented politicians. Uh, 
This is coming from Linda Powell, a professor of political science at the University of Rochester, who's conducted research on ter term limits since 1995. And she said that term-limited state legislatures do not have significantly different demographics than non-term-limited legislatures. Uh, term-limited legislatures statistically spend less time addressing constituent casework, and those elected officials have less time overall to form working relationships with their fellow lawmakers. And so here we're getting into this left seat, right seat. And I personally don't see in my mind why this cannot happen. Every other industry or military operation or um, uh, anything correlating to this does this kind of thing. They can build those relationships quick and they can get information and then get rolling. Um, she had pointed to a specific study of the Michigan legislature conducted by researchers um, that found tenure in office does not appear to, to sate legislature's ambition and legislatures attracted to serve after term limits are more, not less, politically ambitious. I get it. You want to go on to serve another office. Okay, do that. Move to another side of it. Take your experience as a representative in the House and move up to be a senator. Hey, it's a promotion. You're going up, you're in a limited area up there. We have 100 senators compared to well over 400 representatives. So it's a promotion. You're in a little more cloistered area. You're dealing with stuff that's a little more sensitive, a little more specific. And you're the final step before a law or a bill is approved or signed into law. So that being said, I said this increased political ambition is the most distinctive characteristic of the new breed of term-limited legislatures, which is great. They can move on ahead. They can go take care of something. You're moving. Um, look at uh, Mayor Buttigieg. He's moving from a mayor to be the president. He's moved up. He pretty much term limited himself by doing that, which is great. I I, I, I commend, I applaud the man for that. I don't support I don't support his um, political viewpoint, but I do commend him for moving on. He's not holding forever in that job. Uh, the report here goes on to say that uh, Senator Maisie Hirono. Uh, D.Y. suggested that other types of election reforms may do a better job of imposing term limits on legislators than actual laws defining those limits. She goes on to say there are better and easier ways, and I would say more effective ways, to connect the government more directly and honestly to the people. In her viewpoint, the most effective term limits are elections, and I do agree. We can vote them out. Quit being lazy. And the most knowledgeable term limiters are the voters. We sit and complain and holler and scream and bitch. You know they're still in there. They're still doing. They're still messing things up. They're not doing what I vote them out. Get them out of there. Take your two little feet. Walk down to the polling place. Vote them out. Don't let all these naysayers say, "Oh, your vote doesn't count in the presidential. This doesn't count." Um, yeah, BS. Go out there and vote. Uh, I was always raised and taught uh, by my family, my grandfathers, my uh, great grandfathers, my father and my uncles, my aunts. If you don't have, if you don't vote, you got no right to complain. Okay, because you did nothing to try to affect change. So go out there and vote, and move these people out of there. 
get rid of whoever it is that you don't like. I mean, I, I've been voting since I was 18 years old, since I was able to vote. I feel I have that right and that privilege to bitch and to complain and to fuss about the idiot that got in there. So, And I've done the best I can to have influence on those to make sure I can get that person that I need in there, that I see would do the proper job. And she goes on with... Um, uh, stating that encouraging policies that support voting rights while keeping members of Congress from taking certain jobs after they retire from office. Stop this going on and still having overall influence in, in Congress, whether it be the House or the Senate, because you took a job with a, um, a, a lobbyist or a corporation that uh, is heavily involved. Uh, it, it, and I agree with her. She, we should not be able to profit from our public service once we're finished with it. Uh, if, for example, you served as head of a department making decisions about detaining immigrants, like former Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly, you should not be allowed immediately to go through a revolving door and get paid by a corporation building those detention facilities. That's a conflict of interest. Okay? Stop. We need to stop these people from doing that. And She goes on to say, former members of Congress should not have floor privileges if they use them to lobby clients. If you're going to be a lobbyist and come in there and talk to your former counterparts, you should have your floor privileges stripped. Stop it. Work on the outside like the rest of us have to do, okay? Uh, there is nothing in there that says that you have to have this privilege of staying on the floor. Um, I said, uh, I'll get into a little bit by... Nick Tambolais, he's the executive director of U.S. Term Limits Grassroots Organization. Um, and the financial practicalities of elections give incumbents an outsized advantage. And it really does. If you're an incumbent, you get all these little perks and stuff. All this money comes into you. And we'll touch a little bit on the, the money that incumbents and uh, representatives and senators get later on when we get into uh, talking about their retirement and pay in comparison to military and the general public. But anyways, we go on. He says, elections may in theory be capable of dethroning incumbents, but it isn't how it works in the real world. So he says, um, congressional incumbents have a 98% re-election rate. So it, it is hard to get them out because we keep voting them in. Stop doing that. He says, prominently made up of lawyers and politicians. We know that. Term limits would give us a legislature that better reflects the diversity of our society. So he's in favor of the term limits. Um, either one, to me, would work. The biggest thing that would work is, as uh, Senator Harino, uh, uh, Hirono pointed out, vote them out. Get them out of there. We need to do our job. Um, and... We got a later on uh, from West Texas A&M University, uh, Prof Professor uh, John David Roush Jr. Uh, said his research found that term limits are somewhere in the middle ground in terms of usefulness. You know, some states had managed to develop more responsive and fiscally responsible legislatures, while others ended up with elected bodies that lacked experience and had diminished power in relation to their executive branches. It's something that when you do this, like anything else when we've changed, you're going to have to uh, experience a little bit of growing pains. You're going to have to make changes. You'll have to adapt. Um, 
lack of experience, Powell said, could also lead some legislatures to defer to unelected think tank and research groups that have established themselves as experts in the area. Again, that's going to be one of those things where we say, no, uh, you need to use your mind and do what we ask you to do. You're there. You work for us. Uh, you don't work for a think tank. You don't work for a, a, a lobbyist. You don't work for all these other happy yahas. You work for the American people who elected you and put you in there. So yeah, my viewpoint is let's vote them out. We can clean the swamp up ourselves. We can help President Trump. We've got an election coming up, presidential election. All right. Vote who you want to. Uh, I'm not going to get into telling people who they should vote for, vote for. That's uh, It's just like the impeachment BS. I didn't get in the middle of that either. But we've got elections coming up, and there's a whole lot of people in these elections, okay? Vote for who you want to. Get your butt up and go out there and vote. Uh, if you can't find a way, write me at vfamm2020 at gmail.com. Or go on my website and send me a message. We'll find you a ride to go vote, okay? There is no excuse to sit on your dead butt and then bitch because you didn't get what you wanted or what you thought you should get. If you vote, you got that right. So, into that subject. We'll move on to the next one. Uh, the next thing we're going to take a look at is gender reallocation. Should the military be paying for it? i got some, some surprises for y'all out there, so hang tight and we'll be right back. Three tours driving Humvees in Afghanistan. Twelve years flying choppers. When my sister came back from her last tour in Afghanistan, she didn't want to talk about it, but she knew I was there to listen. Sometimes my husband still has difficult memories. They can be overwhelming. With the Veterans Crisis Line, I know where to turn when we need support. I made the call and got support for my sister. The Veterans Crisis Line is here for all veterans and their loved ones. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. All right, we're back. We're going to take a look at um, the gender reallocation issue, uh, transgenders in the military. Uh, again, this is another topic that was brought to me from those folks that I know and uh, recommendations off of my website from coworkers. Um, the Pentagon's policy, barring most transgender people from serving the military unless they serve under their biological sex, took effect in April of 2019 uh, as your advocacy groups blasted the Trump administration for moving forward with a controversial measure um, that the Trump administration has pushed so hard to be allowed to implement this base. Well, this is from Jennifer Levi of Transfer and Gender Rights uh, Project Director at uh, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders are glad. Um, there's a lot of people that have issues with this and, um, I understand their issues with it. They want to be accepted. Um, but in response to the criticism, the Pentagon reiterated, reiterated its insistence the new policy is not a ban. Um, I would reiterate that the department will continue to treat all individuals with dignity and respect, and every service member is able to express their gender identity. Pentagon spokeswoman Jessica Maxwell said it in, a, in an email uh, as the DOD will take no action solely based on gender identity. Okay. Now, we all know that uh, transgender troops have been serving openly since the Obama administration lifted a previous ban in 2016. 
In July of 17, President Trump treated he would not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. And as we know, the lawsuits come out. Four lawsuits against the ban followed, and courts issued injunctions in all four cases that prevented the, the policy from being implemented. But those injunctions have since been lifted, paving the way for the policy change. All right. Under the new policy, and please listen, uh, so not everybody gets bent out of shape thinking that, you know, it's a total 100% ban or uh, all kinds of things are going to have to happen. Hang tight. Hold on to your water before we start screaming. But under the new policy outlined in a March 2019 memo, currently serving transgender service members or anyone who has already signed an enlistment contract at that time can continue to serve openly and receive their medical care. All right. But transgender individuals who join the military going forward will have to serve in the gender they were assigned at birth. So that's as of April of 2019. You have to serve as the gender you were assigned at birth. Now, anyone diagnosed with gender dysphoria... Now, let me go back on to something here. Somebody asked me what the meaning of dysphoria is. And we'll get into a discussion on this a little bit later on. But the definition from the Psychological Association, is a profound state of unease or dissatisfaction. It's not a medical condition. It is your mental state of unease or dissatisfaction. Okay, so that we've got that in there. Gender dysphoria. So, and you'll hear this term as we go along, but anyone uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria will not be allowed to enlist unless a doctor certifies they have been stable in their biological sex for 36 months. So, going forward, if you want to serve, you have to serve as the sex that you were born with. Can't come in there and pull the wool over somebody's eyes and say, I identify otherwise. No, not going to happen. Also, anyone serving now who reserves a gender dysphoria diagnosis after the April implementation, they'll follow fall under the new rules. Okay? They have to serve as their biological gender. You know, and it, it goes on to say that you know these diagnoses will be dealt with on an individual basis, depending on what's going on with it. It says if a service member can continue to meet all standards, including deployability standards and all those associated with their biological sex, they can continue to serve without a waiver. Now, troops diagnosed with gender dysphoria can be discharged. Listen to the following. Listen to it in context, okay? That's our biggest problem in the American public and with the mainstream media. We don't do things in context. We pick nitpick. This is in context. Listen to it. I'll say it again. Troops diagnosed with transgen or with gender dysphoria can be discharged if they are unable or unwilling. <clears throat> I'll say it again. Unable or unwilling to adhere to all applicable standards, including the standards associated with their biological sex. This comes from the DTM. Which is your, um, oh, excuse me, which is your directive type memorandum, 
19-004, Military Service by Transgender Persons and Persons with Gender Dysphoria. This comes out as direct guidance. Okay, I'll say it again. If you are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, you can be discharged if you are unable or unwilling to adhere to all applicable standards, including the standards associated with your biological sex. All right? You're not being banned from serving. You have to serve as your biological sex. You're not going to be allowed to go in here and all of a sudden decide you're another gender. That's something. That's a personal thing. That's something to be done on the outside away from all this. Um, ahead of the implementation, the Pentagon had been educating the force on the new policy by distributing fact sheets to military medical providers, service members, applicants, commanders, recruiters, human resources, the whole gamut to make sure everyone understood what was going on with this new policy. Obviously, something's falling through the cracks because everybody's got their ideas of what this damn thing says. Uh, of course, the Pentagon denies the policy is a ban because of the, ca- the carve-outs for currently serving transgender troops and transgender people willing to serve in their biological sex. you got to make the line somewhere. Uh, for years, the Army's been a big social experiment. This is going across that line. If you want to do social experiment, do it on the outside. All right. Uh, of course, transgender service members and all these advocate groups, which is... I mean, they are a minority. We do listen. So, if, argue they argue that it effectively is a ban akin to the defunct "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy that banned open service by gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. Um, in implementing "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" for transgender troops today, <coughs> the Troop Administration has put petty politics above military readiness. Okay. Uh, and personal prejudice above the genuine judgment of military leaders who have made clear that inclusive service has succeeded for the last three years. This comes from an Aaron Belkin, director of the Palm Center. Um, to be honest, I don't know who that is, but obviously he's an advocate, and he's saying that th- this is no good. Well, guess what? This has been out since April of last year, and it's been working just fine other than the uh, shots and arrows and nitpicks by these advocates and uh, uh, people who want to stir up a mess. It's uncalled for. The military is a military. It's not a democracy. All right? It's an aristocracy. You do what you're told and do it effectively and move on. You, you don't have a whole lot of um, messing around. Now, even the American Medical Association got in there and said that there's no medically valid reason to restrict service based on gender dysphoria diagnosis. Obviously, there is, because you have some other extraneous things going on, so restrooms, building, um, the whole nine yards, issuance of uniforms, uh, medical care is an astronomically large um, issue with this who has gender dysphoria. Um, and there's, they say there's no medical science behind this decision. Well, yes, there is. Uh, <laughs> this is when I guess the AMA decides that psychology and uh, things is no lo- is not really a medicine or a medical field. I just read that to you earlier. You know, it's a profound state of unease or dissatisfaction with your gender. Okay, they recognize it as an issue. 
But it's not a physical issue. It's a psychological issue. So AMA, get on board with your other medical cohorts there, and uh, let's get this right. Um, they estimate there's you know, 14,700 transgender military personnel are qualified and rent, uh, willing to serve. And that's great if they're willing to serve. They need to serve as is pointed out, okay, as is directed within the policy. Um, of course, the courts lifted the injunctions against the ban. They did not rule on the underlying merits of the case. You know, as such, you know, the, the cases are proceeding, and they're going to take a look at those. Now, it, it really, really is crazy. You know, yes, they've they've served. Uh, most of them have been very respectful. I have met in my years of service, um, both gay and transgender. They adhere to the policies that have been put in place. When the don't ask, don't tell was there uh, and this new policy, they just want to live their lives. The ones who want to try to live it for them and create a havoc are these who suddenly just, they think they have to go out there and raise sand. Um, get over it. Again, the military is not a democracy. It's not out there to uh, pat you on the back and give you an attaboy and bend over for every little whim and um, thought you may have had. You're in the military. You're going out to kill people. You're going out to wage wars. You're going out to protect our nation. Stop with the social BS. Let's move forward. All right. Uh, I personally have no problem serving with them. Uh, it's when you start trying to push it on top of me. I don't agree with the lifestyle. But it doesn't mean I'm going to disrespect you or shove you under a rock or try to hurt you or deny you the right to the things that you uh, have rights to. Um, just like I ask you, let me live my life. I'll let you live yours. We can discuss it. We can talk about it, about it, about it like adults. Don't sit there and try to beat me and tell me I have to accept it because guess what? I don't. You can move on down the road. Just like you can tell me the same thing. You do not have to accept what I have to say. You can tell me to move on down the road. Or in the case of the podcast, you can shut the podcast off. Okay? All right. Moving on. Uh, on our next segment, we're going to get into the lifetime pay and retirement of Congress. Congress versus the military and the public. And it's not what you think it is. So hang with me through this next little break, and we'll get into uh, the retirement and the pay in Congress. You've served surrounded by brothers and sisters. But it doesn't stop there. Your mission continues. We are the VFW, and as the nation's largest combat veterans organization, we're fighting for our brothers and sisters every day. From Capitol Hill to our own communities, join us in a fight for veterans, service members, and their families. We are the voice for veterans everywhere, and together, we cannot be ignored. Learn more at VFW.org. All right, we're back. Uh, get into the lifetime pay and retirement. Uh, found out that there's some big disparity over that. Uh, it's not what you think it is. Um, this is Congress versus the military and the public. All right. And the question was asking, what 
does a sitting member of Congress earn? All right. They earn a salary of $174,000 a year for every year that they're in, uh, in service. Okay, and that ends when he or she is no longer in office. But depending on when the member was elected, that person does receive a pension, access to a 401k life retirement account, and in many cases, Social Security benefits. Members of Congress started paying into Social Security in 1984. So there's one myth dispelled. Somebody told me, oh, Congress doesn't pay into Social Security. Yes, they do. And I went back and checked, and I dug into it and found that, yes, in 1984, they started paying into Social Security, and it is automatically withdrawn out of their salary. Okay, these benefits are generally the same as any other federal employee. All right. Coming from the Congressional Research Service, members are eligible for the pension at age 62 if they serve five years or more. So your senators who serve six-year terms are going to qualify for it at age 62. Okay, They'll be eligible at early ages with more years of service. So it's the same, the same federal retirement service that we have, that normal federal employees would get. Okay, there are two types of pension plans. There's a civil service retirement system, which was offered to members elected before 1984. Okay, the plan that replaced it, which is what they have now, is the Federal Employees Retirement System, or FERS, which is offered to members elected after 1984. All right, the CSRS is a little more a little more generous than the FERS plan. Um, you know, given members of Congress started contributing to Social Security in 1984, FERS was designed to supplement Social Security retirement benefits. So it is on top of Social Security benefits that you can draw. Okay. Uh, both systems, the size of the pension depends on how long the member has been in, in service and a percentage of the average of their three highest years of pay. Okay. Okay. Uh, the Congressional Research Service reports there are 611 retired members of Congress with a federal pension. Okay, so not all of them are drawing it or, or haven't started drawing it as of yet. Um, for the members on the CSRS plan, average pension is $74,000 a year. Under the FERS, it's going to be $41,000 a year. Okay. Uh, whether or not a member resigns, retires, or is voted off you know, out of office does not affect his or her pension. The only way a member of Congress can be denied a pension is if, is if her or she was convicted of a felony committed while in office. Then they can be denied their retirement. Uh, some of those in felonies will include you know, bribery, perjury, racketeering, conspiracy to defraud the U.S., acting as an agent of a foreign official. Well, shit, about 70% of them shouldn't even be drawing anything then. No, no, what, okay, that's just my opinion. But um, <laughs> With the way things are going today, I'm... All, I, I say all three sides of the aisle because Republican, Democrat, and Independent, ones in the middle are not sure which way to go. Uh, I, no proof of it. I'll leave it alone. Um, members of Congress and other federal employees also have access to the Thrift Savings Program, TSP, which the military also has. Okay. Any federal employee, military, uh, somebody who works in Washington, uh, your everyday uh, go-to-work jokes, we have access to this. And it's similar to a 401k program. Now they have two programs under the, the TSP, and that's, that's for a subject for another day. Um, 
In 2018, employees were allowed to make voluntary contributions of up to $18,500 into these TSPs. And the government will match contributions of up to 5% of pay for FERS employees. Now, for the CSRS, there's no match. That's why it's a little bit more generous in, in what it pays at their retirement. Okay, as for health care benefits, members of Congress get their health care through the Affordable Care Act exchanges while in office. Once they retire, they can go through the federal employee health plan, but would still pay a percentage of the of the premiums. Okay, so it's just like the military. You know, once you retire, you can maintain your TRICARE. No, Congress does not have access to TRICARE. Um, that is a military thing. Uh, they can go to Humana or some of the other uh, people who manage TRICARE but they cannot get under TRICARE. That's strictly for military personnel and retirees. So, <clears throat> and look, you can get into all this. You can, you know, go on to the Congressional Research Service. They'll, they have a complete uh, a page or several pages and documents uh, for the retirement benefits for members of Congress. So they don't get whatever. Oh, yeah, they're paid for life from one term. No, they're not. I just read it to you. It is in law. They don't get paid for the rest of their life. That is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I'd like for somebody to prove me wrong. But this is what I'm getting from the sources I have available. Um, you know, I got the details from CRS, from CRS report 98-810, the Federal Employees Retirement System, Benefits and Financing. Uh, same way with the FERS from the same thing. Details on the TSP, Federal Employees Retirement System, role of the Thrift Savings Program. I mean, I'm going through the documents that <coughs> that are there for us to look at and to read. They're open. They're you know available to the general public. You don't have to be a podcaster or uh, a news media or some kind of special guru with a wishy hat. You can go get it. Joe Blow lives next door. Can go ahead and. Uh, Talk to Joe Snuffy and get it off the, the interweb and read it. It's there. Um, now, one thing that uh, I will point out, you know, you have some of our, and it's less than 1% of our congressional members are military veterans. If they have retired or they have active duty service, you know, that service can be counted towards retirement eligibility, which is, I can do the same thing. Uh, anybody who's retired or has federal service, you can get into, uh, you know, federal military service. You can get into a federal job you know, through USA Jobs or wherever you get the federal job from, and you can buy back your federal time. I can go into the federal job, say I'm going to go to, oh, I don't know, work as a federal employee within the judicial in the uh, Department of Justice. Okay. My military service, all of my federal time, I'll go in there and I'll pay so much month so much a month to buy back that federal service. Now that's added on to the time that I work at the DOJ. Like I said, this is just, you know, an example. So now I've got instead of having working DOJ for four years, I will now have 19 years of federal service because I bought back all the other that was uh, uh, that was military time, uh, federal military time. I retire earlier. So it, it's, 
that's one of those opportunities we have. Some of our congressmen can do that. Uh, we have some of them that are still serving. You know, and God bless them. You know, it's great that they're still serving. Um, and we'll leave it at that. But they'll have that opportunity to do so. That adds on to the retirement, which makes them retire a little bit earlier. Um, so, but yeah, information on this, you know, they've got their age and length of service requirements, uh, which we, you know, in a brief synopsis, we went over that. Your coordination of your, your first benefits with Social Security, all that stuff is there. So they have to go through the same pain in the butt thing that we do. The only difference is probably they've got a, a really good lawyer to, to make this happen easier than what it does for us. So, yes, Congress gets a nice little pocket. Now, where they get a lot of money coming in is your lobbyists and your special interests and things like that. And we mentioned, we talked about that earlier in term limits. We need to put a stop to that. You know, they don't need to be getting all this. You know, they should be, uh, to me, they should be barred and banned from being a lobbyist later on. If they do want to be a lobbyist, pull their floor privileges. You're not allowed to come back on the halls, on the floors of the Senate and the House and talk to these people and try to, and you need to do that outside. Um, if you look back at the history from our founders, it was never intended to do that. So anyway, <clears throat> back on to our retirement and pay. Now you have it by the law. They do not get paid for life. They retire like any of the rest of us do. And their salaries and stuff stop when they leave office. So give us a few minutes here. That's all I have on that subject. I'm going to take a very short break. And then we'll be back for our closing and our unit of the day and mention our, of our uh, sponsors. And I'll give you my fi final thoughts for the day. Tommy Lauren, don't hit me. It was just one of those that happened to come up. We'll talk to you in a minute. I was in the hospital with my son for 18 months. When he got injured, I wasn't prepared, but I knew I had to be strong. When I was told about John's injury, I was in complete shock. I just remember rushing into his room and giving him a big hug and letting him know I was there. These veterans and families are just a few of the heroes we serve at Homes for Our Troops. For thousands of severely injured veterans, everyday life is filled with barriers. It was really the, the little things throughout the house. Counters that you can't roll up to. I had to drag my wheelchair down steps. I want to help, but he is so determined. At Homes for Our Troops, we build specially adapted custom homes with features like wheelchair access, roll-in showers, and automatic door openers that allow them to function independently and focus on their recovery and family. This house is freedom. It's hope. It's a new beginning. This house has given me my family back. To learn more, visit hfotusa.org. All right, thank you for bearing with us there. And we're into the last segment of the, the program. And uh, right now we'll bring up our unit of the day, the 5th Marine Regiment at a Camp Pendleton. Um, a very storied and historic um, Marine Corps Regiment, the United States Marine Corps, the 5th Marine Regiment. They are part of the 1st Marine Division and the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, or 1st Mardiv, 1st MEF. And like I said, they're out of Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. Uh, they're called the Fighting 5th. And they started out 
in June 8th of 1917 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, as the 5th Marine or 5th Regiment of Marines uh, immediately deployed to France, arriving on June 26th, and were assigned to the 1st Infantry Division of the U.S. Army. Uh, later that year, in October, they were reassigned to the 4th Brigade of Marines under the 2nd Infantry Division. Uh, in spring, uh, spring of 1918, the regiment was involved in Phil's ba- the Fierce Battle of Bella Woods and was given the nickname Devil Dog, or as a lot know, Tufelhunden, which is German for Devil Dog. All right, And the 5th subsequently participated in the offensives at Ancenay, the, the Battle of St. Mihal, and uh, the Moose Argonne Offensive. Uh, please forgive me if I butcher these names up. I do not speak French. <laughs> so, and they also participated in the offensive campaigns at Toulon, Trayon, Chateau Thierry, uh, Marbauge, and Limey from 1918 until 1919. Uh, the regiment participated in the occupation of the German Rhineland. Um, in August of 1919, it relocated back to Marine Corps Base Quantico in Virginia and was inactivated on August 13th of 1919. Uh, the regiment's actions in France earned them the right to wear the Forger, the French Forger. Um, it's also seen in the outline of the unit's logo. Uh, one of only two in the Marine Corps, the other one being the 6th Marine Regiment, uh, is authorized to wear this at all times, as long as you're assigned to these two regiments. The award was a result of being the only regiment in the ex- American Expeditionary Force to receive three Croix de Guerre citations, uh, two in the Order of the Army and one in the Order of Corps. Uh, Forger and Croix de Guerre uh, with two palms and gilt star. The Forger became part of the, unit, uh, uniform, uh, un- part of the uniform of the unit, and all members of the organization are authorized the, to wear the decoration on the left shoulder of the uniform while members of that organization. So very impressive uh, World War I history. Um, three Marines of the regiment were awarded the Medal of Honor for their actions during, uh, during the First World War. Um, Sergeant Louis uh, Kukula, uh, Gunnery Sergeant Ernest A. Jansen, and Sergeant Matej Kosak each received two Medals of Honor, one from the Navy and one from the Army for a single action. Um, making them three of only 19 double recipients of the medal. In addition, uh, two U.S. Navy officers attached to the 5th Marines received the Medal of Honor, Lieutenant Commander Alexander Gordon Lyle of the Naval Dental Corps and Lieutenant Orlando H. Petty of the Medical Corps. Uh, the unit was reactivated again in 1920 when elements of the reg- regiment participated in mail guard duty in the eastern United States from November 21 through May of 1922, and once again from October 1926 through February 27. They then deployed to Nicaragua from January 1927. They continuously fought Nicaraguan rebels until they were again inactivated in April of 1930. Uh, the 5th Marines were, were reactivated for the last time on September 1st, 1934 at Quantico and were assigned to the 1st Marine Brigade uh, in 1940, they were deployed to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and reassigned to the 1st Mardiv, 1st Marine Division, February 1941. And they were garrisoned at New River, North Carolina. Uh, shortly after that, we had the outbreak of a war, and the 5th Marines deployed to Wellington, New Zealand in June of 42. Uh, during World War II, they fought in Guadalcanal, New Britain, eastern New Guinea, Peleliu, and Okinawa. Uh, immediately following the war in September of 1945, they uh, deployed to Tientsin, China, 
and participated in the occupation of North China until May of 1947, where they were redeployed to Guam in May of 1947 and reassigned to the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade. Uh, in 1949, they re- relocated back to their current home at Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. Uh, during the Korean War, um, in August of 1950, the 5th Marines were deployed to the Pusan Perimeter as part of the Provisional Marine Brigade there. Uh, from there, they participated in the Incheon Landing, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, and fighting on the East Central Front and Western Front until the end of hostilities. Immediately after the war, they participated in the defense of the Korean demilitarized zone. Boy, we'll get it out there in a minute. Uh, From July of 1953 until July of 1955. After that, again, they returned to home base at Camp Pendleton in March of 55. Uh, They continue on with their service through Vietnam War. March 5, 1966, the 5th Marines deployed to the Republic of Vietnam. They remained in Vietnam for the next five years fighting at Rung Sat, Chulai, Phu Lak, Wei, Quezon Valley, A Ha, um, Anhoi, Tam Kai, and Da Nang. Uh, 5th Marines finally left Viet- Vietnam in April of 71. Uh, in 2003, former 5th Marine sniper turned Vietnam War author John J. Culbertson documented in 13 Cent Killers, the 5th Marine snipers in Vietnam, uh, the stories of the 5th Marine Regiment marksmen who, as the public described, fought with bolt rifles and bounties on their heads during the fiercest combat of the war from 67 through the Tet Battle of for Hue in 1968. Um, in their post war years through the 90s, elements of the regiment participated in Operation New Arrivals, which was a relocation of Vietnam re- refugees to Camp Pendleton, California, and that was from uh, July through December of 75. Next major ap- uh, operation was Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm from August of 1990 through April of 91. Combat operations in Southwest Asia were quick and were followed by Operation Sea Angel in Bangladesh uh, May through June of 91. And then to come into modern history, uh, beginning in February of 2003, the 5th Marines deployed to Kuwait with his 1st, 2nd, and 3rd battalions as part of the force that would be part of the invasion of Iraq. They were supported by elements of the 1st Light Armored Reconnaissance Brigade, 2nd Tank Battalion, and various firing batteries of the 11th Marines, 2nd and 3rd Assault Amphibian Battalions, Company B from the 1st Combat Engineer Battalion, and Combat Service Support Company 115. These attachments brought regiment strength up to more than 6,000 personnel on any given day, and it was the largest regiment as large as the regiment had been in its history. Uh, on March 21st, the regiment became the first unit to cross into Iraq as it moved to seize the uh, Ramalia oil fields. For the drive north, RCT-5 advanced up four-lane highway before swinging east toward the Tigris River until the first Mardiv reunited to push into the red zone that encompassed Baghdad and its suburbs. After all objectives had been secured, the Marines occupied assigned security sectors and conducted follow-on combat operations during during much of the attack north the regiment led the first mardiv in the deepest attack in marine corps history the regiment suffered 12 killed in action and 126 seriously wounded in 33 days of combat from october 2004 to march of 2005 the regimental headquarters staff uh, was deployed to Iraq in order to take over the role of the Iraqi Security Forces Training Director in support of the 1st Marine Division at Camp Blue Diamond. 
Uh, because the regiment wasn't deployed as a regimental combat team, the headquarters staff took on the responsibility of working with the Alanbar Iraqi National Guard and the Iraqi police in Ramadi. Uh, in Fallujah in 2006 through 2007, they were deployed. In February 2006, the regiment deployed as Regimental Combat Team 5 to the Al-Anbar province, Iraq, and assumed control of the greater Fallujah area from the 8th Marine Regiment. Uh, they conducted combat operations in which the training and advising of Iraqi forces in conjunction with military transition teams, MITTs, and police transition teams, PITTs. RC, RCT-5 was camped with in Camp Fallujah under the command of 1st Marine Expeditionary Force Forward until January of 2007, when they were relieved in place by the 6th Marine Regiment. And first time in 94 years that the two regiments have been together on the battlefield. <clears throat> so it's been since World War I. Okay, as of December 7th, the 5th Marine Regiment had lost 221 members during combat operations in Iraq, and this includes members of the regiment and other battalions that served under the 5th Marines. In early December 2007, 5th Marines dedicated a memorial, a memorial for the 221 men killed in Iraq. The names include those of seven Army soldiers attached to the regiment. A group of Orange County residents formed a group called the 5th Marine Regiment Memorial Fund in early 2007 and raised more than $72,000 to pay for the memorial. Modeled after barriers in Iraq to help prevent car and truck bombings, the memorial carries an inscription on the top reading, Fallen and Never Forgotten, and one at the bottom reading, Freedom Fighter, Fallen Warrior. The 5th Marine Regiment has continued on multiple deployments throughout the year. They have deployed to Al-Assad in 2008 to 2009, and then began deployments to Afghanistan from 2011 to 2012, in the Helmand province uh, during Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, where they replaced the 1st Marine Regiment down there. Um, then they, <clears throat> excuse me, then they had Exercise Desert Scimitar during the spring of 2003, uh, where there were 29 Palms. Um, they became a Special pur Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force from May 2014 to December 2016, um, and this was in response uh, with Colonel Jason Baum commanding it, and that was in uh, support of CENTCOM. So in all total, the 5th Marine Regiment has been presented with the following awards, a Presidential Unit Citation with two Silver Stars, a Joint Meritus Unit Award, Navy Unit Commendation with four Bronze Stars, a Meritorious Unit Commendation with one Bronze Star, a Croix de Guerre with two Palms and one Gilt Star, Korean Presidential Unit Citation, the Vietnam Cross of Gallantry with Palm Streamer, the Vietnam Meritorious Unit Citation Civil Action Medal. Their flag contains the World, One, World War I Victory Streamer with one Silver Star, Army of Occupation of Germany Streamer, Second Nicaraguan Campaign Streamer, American Defense Service Streamer with one Bronze Star, Asiatic Pacific Campaign Streamer with one Silver and one Bronze Star, World War II Victory Streamer, Navy Occupation Service Streamer with Asia Clasp, China Service Streamer, National Defense Service Streamer with three Bronze Stars, Korean Service Streamer with two Silver Stars, Vietnam Service Streamer with two Silver Stars and two Bronze Stars. 
the Southwest Asia Service with three bronze. Afghanistan campaign with one bronze. Iraqi campaign with one bronze. These are all stars. Uh, and the Global War on Terror Expeditionary Streamer and the Global War on Terrorism Streamer. Um, this is an outstanding unit. Um, well worth mentioning and well worth our support. So hats off to our men and women, men and women of the 1st Marine Regiment, the 5th Marines, the Fighting 5th of the United States Marine Corps. Uh, Semper Fi, brothers and sisters. Okay, and a little word today on our sponsor, the Vietnam, or excuse me, make a correction here, sorry about that. Uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars Post 2702 out of Huntsville, Alabama. Um, it is a one of the oldest posts within the, the state of Alabama. Uh, first built and put into place in 1954 for the building. Uh, the post itself around just a little bit longer than that. Uh, they have a device, diverse roster of veterans, and they're proudly building a new generation of veterans of foreign wars at the post. It is the largest, oldest, and most powerful war veteran service organization in the, in the United States. Uh, we're ser post 2702 is currently the second largest VFW post in Alabama, uh, we're wor and working towards trying to be the largest. Um, they're working hard to change the old narrative of dark, smoky bars and to reinsert themselves into the forefront of service to North Alabama and its veterans in the community. Uh, they are actually syncing partnerships with programs and partners who assist veterans from World War II to Operation Enduring Freedom. Um, with an updated vision and revived purpose, they understand the current day veteran community is far more diverse than it was 20 years, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and it's why they're committed to gaining new members of all ages, genders, and conflicts. They want to increase their local support of veterans organizations and, and, and to... Uh, update what the VFW can bring to the city. Um, and I, as a member, I'm kind of, uh, kind of partial to them, but, uh, they are working hard to overcome the old, um, views of the VFW. And I think they're doing a really good job at, uh, uh, overcoming that. So if you get a chance to stop by the building, it's, um, right there at Sparkman and Memorial Parkway, um, uh, be off on the, Oh, below the overpass Memorial Parkway, right there on Sparkman and 72. Uh, it's 2900 North Memorial Parkway in Huntsville, Alabama. If you're from out of state visiting, by all means, stop by. We'll do some swapping around of hats and T-shirts and things of that nature uh, and, and swap war stories and ideas that you may have or that we, have, we may have come up with from our different posts. If you're not a member of the VFW, come on by and we'll, we'll talk to you and we'll see what we can get done for you. Uh, you can visit their website at www.vfw2702.org. That's vfw2702.org. Come on by and check us out. All right. My closing thoughts for the day. The topics we covered today were controversial and interesting. Um, I learned something new while researching them. You know, I wasn't aware on as far as our lifetime pay and retirement that in all reality our congressmen or our uh, congressional members both house and senate didn't get paid for life unless they properly retired through the first program and receiving a salary 
of $174,000 a year until they leave the service of the, the Congress. Um, something I did not know. Uh, I'd always been to the belief, like everybody else, that once you serve a term, you're paid for life, and you're not. Uh, only if you retire uh, from the Congress, according to the stipulations. Uh, the gender reallocation program. I was not fully aware of uh, the stipulations for serving as a transgender individual. And I agree wholeheartedly. If you're coming in there, you're going to have to serve as your biological gender. There are so many ramifications. And please, transgender folks out there, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to disrespect you. I'm not trying to um, reduce the role you play or the service that you give. But you can't expect everybody just automatically, boom, accept something that is not natural. It really is not natural, both scientifically and religiously. Okay, so you're not religious. All right, let's go with the scientific fact. You will always be what your biological gender is. If you take away all those medications they give them, and even the surgeries, they'll be there. When you die, or anything else, when they test your DNA, or they test to identify who you are, you're going to identify as a male or a female, what you were born on. I'm sorry you don't feel comfortable with it. But don't make your problem my problem when I'm trying to get something accomplished. Don't make your problem everybody's problem and make things worse. If you need help with it, there's people out there that will give you help to try to get this figured out or to accept what you think is right. That's fine. Do what you need to do. But don't force it on other people just because you think everybody has to. We don't. I don't have to accept all the religions, but I respect the people for their choices. I do not have to accept your transgender message, but I will respect you for how you feel. Until that point where you force me and tell me I have to accept it and I have to follow the rules based on that. No. Everybody has their own life. Everybody has their own beliefs. Everybody has their own way of doing things. So it, when you start forcing people, that's a whole nother story, a whole nother situation. And we have a lot of that going on now. Uh, you're forcing me to do this. You're forcing me to do that. And all of a sudden, I'm the bad guy because I wasn't brought up that way. I wasn't taught that way. Uh, a lot of other people weren't brought up that way. The majority of people... Uh, are accepting by nature. But when you bring things out that's totally against any kind of norm or morality or religious teaching, and I'm sorry, I don't know of many religious teachings that say that transgender or homosexuality or things of that nature are acceptable, except for when you bend or change or bastardize those teachings and trainings. Um, you know, I had a uh, had a young individual come to me. Well, I'll just go to a Muslim country. Yeah, you go ahead and do that, and you see how that works. 
they actually ex- execute in some of these countries when you are homosexual or transgender or things of that nature. You go ahead and do that. Meanwhile, you're trying to make things even rougher in your own country, which can be and will be accepted, accepting of your thing, your your situation or your belief. But again, don't force it on those who don't agree with it or don't believe in it. They'll still respect you as a human being and talk to you as an adult. But when you start forcing and you start being radical about it, you're going to be in for a fight. If you haven't figured that out by now, keep going. You'll figure it out. Somebody will help you figure it out the hard way. All right. But that's pretty much what we have for this show. You know, as always, I invite uh, everybody to come send me an email, vfamm2020 at gmail.com, or stop by our webpage. New webpage is up, viewfrommilitarymind.com. That's viewfrommilitarymind, all one word, all run together, dot com. Um, see what's on there. We, we have our... Uh, Show links on there. We have what's on, what's going to be on our next show is going to be up uh, usually about Thursday or Friday of the week. Um, there's a spot on there where you can leave your comments. You can uh, contact us and write to us on there. Uh, we're also on Twitter, uh, Military Mind, at Military Mind on Twitter. Uh, we have a Facebook page, and we also have a Facebook group. If you would like to be part of the show or if you would like to give comments that's on the show, uh, and see us when we do our once a month live um, video cast of the podcast. Come to View from Military Mind on Facebook and join our group. Ask to join the private group. It is a private group. It is kind of restricted. Uh, but come on there. Ask to get invited. I'll invite you on there. You can put in your opinions. I ask that you act like an adult. Do not disparage others. Do not cuss others. Do not belittle or demean others because of their opinion. Be an adult. Be respectful. And back what you have up with facts. Don't give me conspiracy theories or assumptions or rumors or things of that nature. But I invite everybody to come on there. Uh, if you're not sure about something, ask you know, ask us. The, the group would be more than happy to uh, help you find the facts to either support or debunk what you've brought about. Uh, We're not there to force anybody into a belief. We're there to share beliefs, no matter what that may be. And you never know, one day you may be on the show as a guest. I would love to have some of you come on as a guest. So as we come into closing, I appreciate you listening to the, the program and listening to my thoughts and um, and listen to the, the information that I've researched and brought to you on specific topics. And um, I invite you to uh, uh, interact with the show and keep listening. Let your, your friends and your relatives and your neighbors and everybody you can think of, let them know about the show. Tell them, view from a military mind. Um, I do uh, broadcast on uh, Google Podcast, iHeart, iTunes, Streaker, Breaker, uh, CastBox, RadioCast. And a number of others, you'll find those also on our website at viewfrommilitarymind.com. So from me and my family and the staff of View from Military Mind podcast and Valkyrie Pod Productions, I want to wish you a very good day and a good evening. 
and a good week, and we will see you again on the upcoming weekend. God bless our troops, God bless the American people, and God bless the United States of America. Good night. <laughs>